pathology said you have stage three colon cancer. Lightning struck again. And I was like, oh my God, what, what's happening here? But this time was different. Welcome to the Fearless Happiness Podcast, where we showcase phenomenal individuals who have overcome serious traumas, life obstacles, and challenges to find their own path to fearless happiness. Listen as Max Naist invites guests from all around the world to share their experiences and spread strength, hope, and faith. This is the Fearless Happiness Podcast, and this is Max Naist. All right, everybody. This is Max from the Fearless Happiness Podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this world. You know what I like to how I like to start it off. Today, I have a very special guest who has gone through some crazy challenges in his life. He's an amazing gentleman that I'm just getting to know, but I've heard so much about him. I go, I got to have him on my podcast. His name is Howard Brown. But what I like to do, Howard, is have you kind of introduce yourself to my audience, like who you are, what you do, and and we'll get rocking and rolling. You got it. Well, Max, thanks for having me on, and I'm I'm excited to be with you and uh, and share with your audience. So um, I, I always introduce myself by telling you that I, first and foremost, uh, you know, I am a son. I am a twin uh, brother. That uh, I have a twin sister, so that matters a lot. I am <laughs> a husband, and I am a dad. And that at the end of the day, that's that's the important stuff. But professionally, I'm a Silicon Valley tech entrepreneur. I've started a bunch of companies. I've taken them public. Uh, I founded a bunch of other uh, cool platforms. Uh, maybe we'll get into some of the technology stuff. It's up to you. And um, uh, unfortunately, uh, twice in my life, I, I got knocked down to my core. I'm a two-time stage four cancer patient survivor and, uh, and now national advocate. And uh, it, it's, it just knocked me down to my core. I, my life stopped, as I know it, at age 23 for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, blood cancer of the lymphatic system, and then again at age 50, just seven years ago, from stage four uh, colon cancer. And so um, I've, I've had to put Humpty Dumpty back together again a whole bunch. Well, so you, so how, let me put it, how old are you, Howard? Because you do not look like the age that you just said you were. Like I you look- 57. You look, you're 50. <laughs> okay, you're two years older than me, but- I think you and I look great. If you yeah, baby. You know what I mean? <laughs> wow. You know what I mean? So everybody got to understand. I heard about Howard through a good friend of mine who also was a guest on here. And to go through that, what you just said twice, right? Has to be like some of the, like you said it, like butt kicking, knock you down kind of stuff, right? Like once is enough, but my man here, Howard went through it twice. So talk my audience through like the first time you went through that challenge when you got diagnosed with cancer, right? Because being an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley back then, right? You were you were in the boom when it was all just taken off, right? And very successful man. And then you get told that, right? And yes, what happened? Like what was when you got that diagnosis? I mean, like nobody knows until they actually goes through it. But if you don't mind, walk my audience through what that's like to get told that i absolutely will so i I, obviously my stories run in parallel so the first story i call it analog because it's 1989 i am 23 years old i just graduated from babson college in boston (laughs) the number one school for entrepreneurism in the world kind of proud of that and i'm actually wearing a babson shirt today for those uh any any video but on the audio side of things but um, I graduated and my career is just starting off. I I uh, worked in the in the bank services division of a company called NCR. They're known for their ATMs and their banking equipment and uh, 100-year-old company, cash registers. So I get promoted. I'm moving to Dayton, Ohio, and I find on my left cheekbone a little pink bump. And I'm driving the Pennsylvania Turnpike. I'm literally, I'm moving out to Dayton, Ohio from Boston, the Boston suburbs. And I feel something there. And I look in the rearview mirror every time and I see it. So I get out to get gas on the Pennsylvania Turnpike heading to Ohio. And I use a payphone. I call back to mom and dad, payphone, 1989, right? And right. say, hey, listen, I got this little thing. It's probably nothing. And I wore glasses at the time. So I, I thought it was nothing. So I, I get to Dayton, Ohio, and it's, things keeps getting bigger a little bit. And it's turning from pink to purple. So every every phone call is like, how's that little thing on your cheekbone? And I was like, it's fine. I'm going to the gym. I'm getting into my work. Um, I play basketball. I'm real athletic. And so I'm just getting started. So about 
10 days uh, later, my mom comes out to actually get my apartment set up, you know, clean sheets, dishes, you know, stuff that I things that moms do for us. Yeah, that's what moms <laughs> do for their sons. So she she came out and she sees this thing and she's like, oh my God, it's get it's it's like the size of a marble. I go, yeah, it doesn't hurt. And I didn't have any doctors there. And people at work knew, like, you okay? I was like making excuses. Yeah, I got hit with a dumbbell at the gym or I got elbowed in basketball or whatever it is. It, it didn't bother me. It just started getting bigger. So as 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 really luck would have it, I flew back to Boston. I'm speaking at the American Bankers Association. And uh, in my early days of keynote speaking and talking about disaster recovery, that had to be electronic plans. This is 1989. So this is is new stuff. And I go and visit my parents. My dad kind of plays a trick on me and says, well, let's go play tennis. But he doesn't take me to play tennis. We go to the community hospital. They they go in there. I wait in the emergency. They say, yeah, it looks like a cyst, emergency room doctor. Take some uh, antibiotic. You'll be fine. So that's on like a Saturday. On Monday, I go do my speech, not feeling that great. I go home, have dinner before I'm going to fly out that night. And my dad takes me back to the community hospital. And they this time take not one, but two biopsies. And this is probably, I don't know, August, maybe you're late. Uh, yeah, August, that time frame. So like a month goes by and we don't hear from anybody. My parents are going crazy. What is it? There's no results. It's, you know, it's, they don't, they're not hearing anything. I am flying around the country doing my presentations. It's getting bigger. And um, it, it grew to the size of a golf ball. And so wow. something's wrong, right? right. So the, I finally get the call. They come back to Boston and go to the community hospital. I show up at the community hospital. And this is going to be like an overnighter. I'm coming in and um, I'm flying out that next night. So that next morning we go to the hospital at 10 o'clock. I'm in like an Armani suit. I got to go and fly to somewhere else. And my parents are dressed up. I have no idea why, but uh, maybe we're going to go to dinner in Boston or something. They take me to the airport. But I get there and there's not one doctor. There's seven. There's seven doctors. I was like, what's the party for for me? Right. And right. until they said these words, we have a, you have a 2 p.m. appointment at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Um, don't be late. But they didn't tell me what I had. They just said, we don't know what you had. We, we don't know, but we know that that's your next appointment. So I'm like, all right, well, I'm 23 and a half years old. I'm going to Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. It still really didn't hit me. So 40 minutes, we drive in. We're not late. We get there and walking into a cancer hospital. It's a hospital, right? And uh, the first thing I noticed is that there's old people. I'm 23. There's a lot older people there. Not me, not not me. So I go down to the pediatrics area called the Jimmy Fund, which is the Boston Red Sox sponsor pediatric blood cancers. And the kids at least there are five years old and they're you know, try to play games. They don't know what's going on. And then I get called in, do some tests. And finally, I get called to this uh, Dr. George Canellis's office. He's got the big mahogany with all the plaques all over the place, books yeah. everywhere. He invented chemotherapy, I learned, for lymphomas and, and leukemias. And there's a young doctor in a white coat standing behind him. My parents are sitting behind me, and I'm, I'm, I'm like the pupil in front of the teacher's desk. Right. And he basically says, young man, he goes, you have stage four T-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you have uh, blood cancer of your entire lymphatic system that is normally used to protect yourself. We're going to pound it out with you know, high-dose chemotherapy. And I didn't hear another word. I looked up to this young doctor who's closer to my age, Eric Rubin, and I was like, what are you, what's he talking about? I look back, my mom's bawling her eyes out. My dad's a statue, stunned. And like I'm like a deer in the headlights. I really didn't hear another word. And so they say, come back uh, for more tests. And then in two days, you're starting chemotherapy. We go home that night and my twin sister is home from work and we get there and we basically had a big cry fest because, you know, when we heard someone had cancer, it means you die. And especially stage four, my dad went to the library and bought a book on cancer. There was no internet, no cell phones. Right. And um, computer use was really just starting. So I show up for my test the next day and I noticed that you know, there's candy everywhere. And I'll tell you a quick aside. My mom shows up and there's, she's a candy holic. There was no candy one time. And my mom's like crazy. She called like 10 candy companies and got candy donated <laughs> for like 10 years. They want something sweet there. And even though sugar is not good for you, yeah, she just did it. So I show up for uh, chemotherapy and they do blood tests for it. And they make you wait. Uh, you know, I'm waiting there forever, it seems. And Dr. Rubin walks out and he says, there's no, no, no treatment today. I was like, oh my God, I haven't slept in two days. You know, you told me I'm basically have three to six months to live and they never admit to any of that. Uh, I looked it up, you know, myself and found out that, you know, didn't have a good chance with aggressive, uh, you know, uh, blood cancer. And so he says, no, you're going to do a field trip instead. I go, field trip, why? 
He goes, you're going to the cryogenic center. I said, cryo what? What's that? He goes, it's, it's the sperm bank. I go, you just told me I'm going to die. Why am I going there? He's like, well, he goes, young people, it's a really good thing uh, to talk about fertility and go do something about it. He goes, just go do it. He goes, it might feel good. And I, I was like, okay, it might give you some relief. You're stressed out. So I did it. And I didn't think about it except getting a bill once a year. And the next day I started chemotherapy. Well, pretty quickly on, I lost my hair. And also I learned that the toxicity of the chemo um, made me basically fertile. So I went through uh, chemo and this is maybe started October. I went to my fifth year high school reunion and um, it was, I think, at Thanksgiving time. And basically, I, I went there bald. I went there with a mask on, and I went there with gloves. I didn't have an immune system, or it was severely compromised. So think about what we went through with COVID, right? right. And um, this is, you know, now 1989. And I heard the kid, you know, the guys were brutal. You know, oh, poor bastard. You know, dead man walking. You know, you know, it's it was harsh. But I, I had no idea. You know, and I'm still processing this stuff. So, uh, you know, did I suffer some anger? Yes. Did I was I in denial? Yes. Uh, did I get depressed? Yes, all those, all those into one because I, as I said, I got stopped in my tracks emotionally, physically. Um, you know, I, I really wasn't working too much. I got put on disability eventually. Um, but I moved back home with mom and dad, and I, I, I had my inner circle. My twin sister was there. I didn't get any news. I was failing all the cocktails they were throwing at me. I was in the hospital. I started to do uh, blood transfusions, platelet transfusions, red and white cells. And I started spending time in the hospital because when you lose your immune system, any little, you know, virus, fungus, bacteria can, can right. really kill you. Right. So I'm spending a lot of time in the hospital. It's cold out in Boston. And the only piece of good news that came through was in late February of 1990, my twin sister, CJ Brown Jingris, typed an exact match for what's now called a stem cell transplant or a bone marrow transplant. I didn't know what that was, but they taught us what it was where they extract the bone marrow, they process it, and they inject it. And um, the hope is, is that uh, that that will become your immune system and overtake the malignancies in your body. Now, it could kill you right away too, or it could kill you quickly over time, and it can have severe side effects. So when you sign this paperwork to do this stuff, you you have no idea. You're, you're basically praying that this stuff could work because they don't know either. The docs don't know either. And I had great care. So on May 24th, I was my scheduled bone marrow. A week before, I came in and I did rock'em, sock'em chemo and full body irradiation and was placed in an isolation room. Think John Travolta and Boy in the Bubble movie. No immune system, okay? Harsh stuff. And they had no idea what the future could lay for the, all this stuff they were, they, were, they, were, they were, you know, blasting me with. But it got my immune system down to zero. Now, the protocols have all changed as time goes on. But right. my sister's bone marrow was given to me at five in the afternoon on May 24th. I just celebrated my 33rd bone marrow birthday. And we had to see if it worked. And they basically take blood counts and to see if that works and to see what type of side effects it's giving. And slowly but surely, after 34 days, it was working. It was becoming my immune system. Now, um, and then they started me up for a clinical trial to strengthen my natural killer cells and my DNA. I walked out of there in December. I did a support group and I walked out of there in December. So for someone with stage four blood cancer, like leukemia or lymphoma, it's very quickly that, that I, I was able to actually go through treatment starting in October of 89 and walk out of there in December of 90. And then I had to rebuild Humpty Dumpty. So I went down to Florida. I was 135 pounds and bald. Um, and two of my friends came with me and I, I stayed with a friend from NCR who was going through a divorce at his house in Tampa, went golfing, played basketball, went to the Super Bowl, started to live a bit but I, I was very weak and I had to build up my mental toughness, my physical toughness. And I went to Hawaii that year on the, on the sales trip for NCR and I, I got permission to do so. And they said, we got to offer you a job. And I said, I, I want warm weather. So they offered me Atlanta uh, in the banking division and they offered me the network products division. And I said, well, network products, that could be the future. So in LA. So in uh, June of 1991, I moved to Los Angeles and I still was under surveillance quarterly, taking gallium scans, blood tests at UCLA Med Center. And I started to put my life back together. I had to get up again and I had to actually build my mental toughness, build my work confidence and my career. And I actually started to do community service. And I met my wife there. I became a nice. big brother. Uh, I got back on the basketball court, my happy place. And I got my life back. I'll take a pause there because that's a whole lot of a lot of shit to throw your way. 
No, it is. And that's, and that's what I like going through that, right. Takes a lot out of you. Right. I mean, what you just explained in the short time, you, we got to, I want my audience to understand and soak it in that you're, you're 23 years old. Right. And I know if I, when I was 23 and you would have told me, I would have been the same way. It would have been like, I'd have been in shock. Like you're telling me I got to stage four. What? Like, and if I don't do this, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, um, but that does take a toll. Right. And what I want you to get into, because I know you probably had your moments where you're like, okay, universe, God, whatever, like this sucks, you know, why me? And, you know, but it sounds what I love to hear too. It sounds like you had a family just surrounded you and loved on you and, and, and supported you through that. And thank God you have your twin sister, right. Who, uh, it matched. Um, because when you said that, you know, uh, John Travolta boy in the bubble, well, going on four years ago, four years ago now, we lost our granddaughter to skids yeah. and mitochondrial disease, right? Yeah. And they were trying all these new things, right? You know, but with mitochondrial disease, there's no cure, right? So it, I can only imagine what you went through because I watched my granddaughter get, you know, hooked up on things to get, let's try to see if this will work for her immune system, right? Because like you said, she had nothing. Yeah. And they had to keep her in the hospital, right? Because like you, any little virus or like someone sneezing could have killed her, right? right? So, you know what I mean? So like you gave me chills, right? Because I'm watching you go through this in my head, right? And this time we're going through this and I go, because, you know, like you said, when when you're guys like us who are like love sports, love being active, right? Works, whatever you're doing is your purpose, right? And you're having this full life and then you're getting told like, almost like a screeching halt stop you can't do it anymore because we got to get you fixed right and then they tell you but we don't even know if it's going to work um that's true so listen miracle number one <laughs> my mom had twins at age 19 right that's got it's 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 what saved my life that uh, there's right. no doubt that that's Absolutely. what saved my life so miracle number one and um plus the fact and you said it uh my mom and dad as my caregivers okay they had to watch their son go through this but they were also my inner circle. And um, I had friends, tons of friends, but I couldn't see them much because I, my immune system was so compromised. So I did a little bit. Um, and um, again, there were tons of moments where I was curled up in a ball, tons of moments where I was rushed into the hospital. Um, but one of the things that uh, I did is that I, I had, I, I tried when at possible, have a positive attitude. And I knew that I had a lot of support. You know why? We had two landlines and there was a freaking big busy signal all the time because everyone's trying to check on me and they could right. barely get a call in, right? That was the busy signal, not even AOL at the time. So uh, I felt that love and people were sending cards and uh, they would try to stop by and if they could. And, you know, they had to wear a mask and gloves and sitting with me, even playing playing Nintendo video games and stuff at the time. Um, and, uh, but uh, boy, I don't wish that on anyone. It, it was It was tough and I am very blessed lucky and grateful to get that get that second chance and put humpty dumpty back together again on that first incident it was it was it was something for sure yeah and that took a lot of grit like so in building that mindset again right like what was what were some of the things that you did that you could share with my audience right to get yourself you just said part of it was like trying to keep a positive attitude yeah was there any certain like a routine you did to keep you going and right like Cause like you, you know, I don't have to tell you, you probably went from like that moment where you're curled up, curled up in a ball, just want to cry and just like, leave me alone to, I got to snap out of this if I'm going to survive. Right. I got to, I have to do this for me. So what was some of that stuff that you did? So there, there was a lot of downtime because I, I could not actually go work out. It was also freezing cold at that time, you know, in the winter, going into the spring in Boston. Um, I, I, I actually was a kid. I played video games. Uh, I read a little bit, um, but here's the deal. I set my, you know, goal on if, cause I missed the trip to Acapulco, Mexico, when you're, you know, you're over quota, I said, I'm going to Hawaii. So I put out a big hairy goal. I had no idea if I could actually make it, <laughs> but I, 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 I put out a goal and I, and I lived through it. Um, and I got very active at Dana Farber because I spent so much time there. So my mom and I became the mayor and mayoress of, of, of Dana Farber. She was getting them candy. We, you know, you sit in the waiting room a long time. You get to know people. What are you here for? What are you here for? Um, you see the kids. 
Um, so there was a 17 year old uh, that had leukemia and him and I were there. He was a young kid. He, I kind of became his big brother. Okay. And it made me feel good to become his big brother. And he needed a big brother at the time. Unfortunately, Christian passed away, but um, I, I went, we, we would cross, cross paths and see each other. And, uh, you know, um, my mom, his mom snuck out to smoke cigarettes, even though their kids were going through this <laughs> stuff because they would, that's how they dealt with stress. Right. So that's some of it. Um, and you know what? I, I'm not a religious guy, but I did go see my rabbi. I asked for prayers. Um, I asked for cheerleading. I asked for all good energy to come my way. And um, also one of the things that I knew because I was an athlete, I was all state in basketball. I was a point guard. I knew that I actually was in charge of how I actually could, you know, be that day and get my mind right. right. So, so I, I knew that I had to fight and get competitive and get, get straight with it. Now I had bad days and, you know, I was curled up in a ball. I had bad days when I'm on steroids. I had bad days. I'm puking my guts out, but the good days I tried to, tried to stay positive. Um, my mom and I watched a couple game shows together. Um, but I, I still was a young kid and, um, I had to kind of figure it out. And it was not easy. I think the hardest part was isolation. It found if, 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 if anyone could actually relate to what prison is, 34 days in isolation is that. I mean, you are can't do anything. I mean, you're right. sitting there, the TV's on, you feel like crap. And um, everyone who comes in <laughs> has to gowned up and be in a mask and you, can't, you can only see their eyes. So uh, they're all done. So again, once I came out of it, though, it was all about helping other folks at Dana-Farber and I really got to know, and I became a student of my disease, became very collaborative. I got to know my oncology team. And again, I broke through some barriers. They don't want to get to know you that closely because you know why? We live in the world of death in the stage four world. And right. they kind of trying to keep an arm's length because it's too hard. How do you go to work every day when you're see, seeing people dying? But I broke that barrier. So Eric Rubin and I, Kathy Lynch, my infusion nurse, uh, some folks at the blood bank, my mom uh, ran a blood drive for me. 400 people came and gave blood in my honor. Um, I was cheering them on that whole time. I don't know if, I mean, I, I mean, it was amazing. So we did that. So that community service and the people giving to me was the fuel. Okay. That, that kept me going. And the, the famous four letter word that I used was hope. I never, ever lost hope. Right. And that was the fuel that kept me going. See, really? that's, that's amazing. Right. And, and that I relate what you just said to my recovery, right? Like I had early on, even now, right. With almost 20 years sober, like I have moments where I just go, I just want to hide and go, you know, crawl into a hole. Right. Yeah. But one thing that I was taught by some of my very, very favorite mentors and my sponsor was as long as I don't take a drink or a drug, there's always hope. So never give up hope. And that's what got me through some hard times, which we'll get into another time. But I know what you mean, right? As long as I kept hope, it kept me going. It was like that internal drive that said, hey, it's going to get better tomorrow, right? So keep going. Um, and today you're alive. So, you know, as long as you're alive and you're smiling, there's always hope, right? And um, listen, it's easy to fall off the bandwagon because I got my life back. I got my beautiful wife, Lisa. I was a big brother mentor to Ian. I'm, I'm raising tons of money for people in need in the Jewish community and other charities. But here's the deal. I am still at my heart was a workaholic. I didn't have balance in my life, but I was just making more room by adding the, uh, the uh, community service, the big brother stuff in. So that means I was working later, working harder, and I was making good money again. And um, I, I needed to learn a lesson. We're just human. We're all balls of clay every single day. And so I moved up to Silicon Valley and the pace up there is actually, it's not right. It's not imbalanced. Two plus two equals 100, which I say in my book. And I taking companies public, everybody was sprinting. So you thought that was normal. It wasn't normal. It was insane. And we're taking companies public. This is the end of the nineties. I took two of them public and the pace was incredible. And so right around 2000, when Silicon Valley and the dot-com went to the dot-bomb, my wife sits me down and she puts an article in front of me and says, families that, you know, eat together and spend time together actually are happy and they live, you know, live, live normally. And she basically gave me the wake up call and said, you know what? I am out of whack here. I am way out of whack here. And it was smart. So she said, if you make a promise to me, we will order that sperm. Remember that? This trip to the sperm egg? We ordered the sperm from Boston. Imagine this miracle number two, 11 years later, frozen sperm 
okay, becomes a beautiful, healthy baby girl, my miracle child, and my frozen kidsicle, Emily. Right. All right. Miracle number two. So, oh my, I mean, blessed, grateful, lucky, right? She's now 21. Okay. And uh, she's a TV reporter in Montana. I mean, I had my own child. Where I mean, I I, 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 the words aren't there because it's the most incredible thing that ever happened. Medical technology, gay and hope gave me a, a, a beautiful child, and so uh, I, I'm so blessed to have that op- opportunity where many don't. Um, there's still obviously adoption and surrogacy and all that, but we went through in vitro fertilization in 2000 to 2001. Really expensive, but oh my god, so much worth it. It was crazy cool. Right. Great. So here's what I want to ask you, Howard, because, um, right, you you get the second chance at life, right? You move to the Silicon Valley, and we know that time was a crazy time, right? Because everybody yeah. wants to outdo everybody. Like you said, you just, you brought, you know, you started two companies. You're an entrepreneur, right? And we know, at least I've been told, right, being an entrepreneur is not for the faint of heart, right? Just that alone, right? Because there's so much that goes along with it right because you're always pushing pushing yourself and like you just said it you were a workaholic you knew it you just love to work and okay so you've got your life back right you're you're you got your kids tell us about number two how does that when that happens how does that hit you and your family right because you got everything you could ever want like you said because people you got to understand i'm seeing here i'm talking to howard and he's got talks about his kid he's got this big old smile on his face right and i'm like you howard you know i love my children i'm a grandfather of 10 right and then right you're you're going at that fast pace and then you get hit with number two how did that happen and or what happened and when did you find out about that so um we moved to um back to Michigan. My wife's from Michigan. My twin sister calls me. I'm moving to Michigan. She has kids, uh, twins that are four, an older daughter that's six. Emily is four at the time. Uh, my wife's sister, Beth, has two sons. They're four and six. I was like, the band can get back together. We're going to move to Michigan. It's a lot less money. It's cost-effective. Great place to raise a family, um, but you deal with the winters. But we we moved in uh, in basically 2005. Emily was four years old to Michigan. So life is good. I'm running uh, two uh, platforms, uh, and the world's largest social networks are faith and religion. So I had two different platforms, one for the Jewish community and calendaring, and one for the Christian community called Circle Builder. Those platforms are available right now. And I things were going good. So at 50 years old, I went in for my uh, physical, annual physical. And then I ended up, I uh, said, you got to schedule a colonoscopy. So I scheduled a colonoscopy at 50 was the age. It's now 45, unless you have family history or symptoms like blood in your stool. And um, I got the flu in April. So I scheduled for June 4th, 2016. I'm a basketball player. I hike, I bike. I'm a, I'm, I'm an athlete. I'm in good shape, right? I wake up from that colonoscopy and Lisa has my left hand. I know the doctor that performed the colonoscopy, the gastroenterologist. I said, Dr. Phil, everything's good, right? He looked at me and goes, no. I found something. And when I find something in your cecum, which connects your small and large intestine, she goes, it's bad news. Well, that I had an eight, eight and a half centimeter tumor in my cecum. And quite frankly, uh, I didn't have many symptoms or any symptoms, no blood in the stool, no irritable bowel, no cramping. And I, <laughs> pathology said you have stage three colon cancer. Lightning struck again. And I was like, oh my God, what what's happening here and so but this time was different and and i want to use a quick time out so listen during covid people didn't go to the doctor because you couldn't you couldn't go to your hospital you couldn't go to your doctors if you get screened okay and i would have been screened at 40 or 42 it took 10 years for this tumor to grow i might have stage one colon cancer or no colon cancer so go get women go get your mammography men go get your prostate check both go get your colonoscopy go get your cardio go to the damn dentist if you get screened and keep your health then you can function at optimum capacity. If you don't, then you get shut down like me or you suffer something. And we learned this now for COVID. So we're way behind in that. So go get screened. Colon cancer is the second leading cause of cancer deaths. There's going to be 155,000 diagnoses this year, 52,000 deaths, and it's preventable by going to get a home test called a fit or a colo guard. You've seen the commercials or you're going to get a colonoscopy, the gold standard. So 
that's my timeout for screening. So I ended up having this eight and a half centimeter. <laughs> I just did screening. my screening thing. So thank, thank God. You. I just did. Thanks for I doing did. that. Cause <laughs> I believe, I believe in that too. Like preventative is my, I do my, you know, my uh, annual checkups. And yep. I remember the first time I had to do the, you know, to check the prostate and all that. I was like, am I that old already? I got to do this. thing. <laughs> but like you, Howard, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. Right. If I can do what I'm supposed to do, get checked, yeah. do the screenings, then I can have a, you know, I've already beat my dad's and my uncle's, right. My dad yeah. died of 55 of a massive heart attack. Right. There so at 55, I've never even had a hint of a heart problem. Right. And so sorry to interrupt, but no, just, no, it's important. I'm, You're emphasizing wanted, my point. <laughs> yeah. I, I did want to just emphasize this point, right. For all of yeah. us people out there, I don't care young middle-aged or old, right? Just go to the doctor when you you need to do your checkups regularly and eat healthy and all that, right? Because then you could be a stud like Howard over here, play basketball even after all this stuff he's been through. Go ahead and continue, Howard. All right. So so the story's not good because I, I have surgery 10 days later. They take out 13 and a half inches of my colon. Yeah. Men have six to eight feet of colon. It's like a rubber band. Women have uh, four to six feet and uh, they take it out. They stitch me back together. And, you know, I, it was, I was in the hospital for a couple of days and I played basketball three weeks later and they took out uh margin and, 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 and lymph nodes. And, and two of those were positive. That's not a good sign. They put in a chemotherapy port in my, uh, underneath my, uh, collarbone so they could actually inject the chemotherapy and fluids and everything through that. Cause it's easier than your veins. Cause they blow out. And I started chemotherapy and it was rock'em sock'em chemotherapy. Um, but this time different. All right. I did allow myself a little grace to be pissed off and say, oh shit, me again, but not really. I was a veteran. I had already been on the front lines of cancer. I was in there again, but this time was different. My daughter was a freshman in high school playing um, travel soccer. My wife and I had been married for 22 years. It was different. It was the digital age, cell phones and computers. And even if you search Dr. Google and saw a 4% chance of living, you know, six to 12 months, I was able to garner information and I also built the movement, the HB strong movement. So people were sending me prayers and cheering me on. And I, 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 I surrounded myself with a lot of good vibration and love, but it wasn't working because I did 12 rock'em sock'em, you know, cycles of chemotherapy and they, uh, they, they, they give you a CAT scan and the cancer spread. So I do another surgery, 10, 10 more inches of colon out. And then I did a clinical trial. And then in July of 17 at the soccer national championships in Dallas, Texas, I go to Baylor hospital because I was feeling really bad for the week before I'm feeling stuff on my ribcage. I'm feeling my tumors. My doctor says, get your ass to the Baylor hospital. So I get there. They take me right in. I do ultrasounds. They think it's my gallbladder. I do a CAT scan. I do blood tests. And this is on like a Thursday. And on they said, your results will be you know back that next morning. I call the hospital that next morning. I go, I need my results. They won't give them to me. I go, you have to give them to me. They go, call your oncologist. So I call my oncologist back in Michigan and he's like, Howard, I got really bad news. Colon cancer is now spread to your liver. Your stomach lining is called the omentum peritoneum and your bowel. He goes, get back here immediately. You're stage four metastatic. I was like, um, no. I said, there's nothing we can do here on Saturday morning here before the soccer semifinals of the national championship of the U16 girls. I said, I'll be back Monday morning. I go set up everything for me Monday morning. So I tried not to tell my daughter. She said she knew, but I did tell two of the parents that came with me to Baylor. One was a nurse, one was a mom. And so I had some support there. My wife is like, uh, you know, freaking out. My parents are freaking out again. And um, I end up coming back and I go down. I was in this clinical trial. They booted me out. And I basically talked to this doctor, a really good colorectal cancer specialist. And I said, listen, I'm 53 years old. I'm fairly athletic. I said, what are my chances uh, of, of, of living through this thing? You know, I, I looked on Google. It says, you know, six, three to six months. Um, and he said one word to me. He said, rarely. And he walked out of the room and I'm in this freaking room by myself. And I, I basically had my, my, my moment. I, I was pissed. I go, this freaking walked out of the room and told me that I'm going to die. I go, that, it's not going that way. No way. I said, uh-uh, nah, uh this ain't happening to me. I said, we're going to fight like hell. I said, whatever the outcome is. So I went the next morning, I went with my um, wife, my twin sister who saved my life, and my mom on FaceTime to see my oncologist. And it was a big cry fest. 
And I let everyone cry for about 10 minutes. And then I called the timeout. And I said, we're stopping crying. What are we doing about this? And they said, we're going to put you on salvage chemotherapy and we're going to hope, hope it works. Well, I went four rock'em sock'em cycles of chemo and we did a CAT scan and I got a little regression. So in cancer, there's stable, there's progression where it's more cancer or there's regression. I got a little bit of regression. So I was like George Costanza with shrinkage. I got some <laughs> damn shrinkage. So um, for that, you get more cycles of chemotherapy. Well, I found online support through polentown.org and I got to talk to people. This wasn't analog days of 1990. This is 2017. I got to talk to people that were five steps ahead of me. And I started investigating some Hail Marys, clinical trials, and some radical procedures. And not radical where it's like an orange juice enema. This is science. FDA right. approved that could happen. So I talked to some folks in this high peck heights, and I learned about a surgery where they call it the mother of all surgeries, where they basically cut you, you go zipper cut like they do heart patients from your chest down on my pelvic bone. On March of uh, 2018, I had this surgery called cytoreduction hyperinterpreneurial chemotherapy. They, they cut me open and they took out all the cancer, dead and live cells they could see. And then they put hot chemotherapy, sealed me back up and rotated me around like a rotisserie chicken so that hot chemotherapy could kill micro cell, cancer cells you can't see. Wow. Well, 13 wow. and a half hours later, I woke up in the ICU and pressed the morphine drip button. My job was to wake up. They did so much cutting in there, they couldn't tell for a year and a half if there was any cancer or not. So I'd go to these scans, I still, we don't know. There's hot spots, there's areas of concern. We didn't know. I also was really weak. I was, again, 135 pounds and bald. I had 90 staples in my stomach, and I, I actually was very weak. And I had to rebuild Humpty Dumpty version two three, whatever you want version again, <laughs> Howard 2.0. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, I, I ended up on September 20th. I got my CAT scan and it said no evidence of disease. I cried my eyes out. I was screaming. Uh, I called everyone I knew I, I actually was cancer free for the first time in a long time. And I ended up going through, you know, rehabbing and going through quarterly checkups. Um, I still, um, had done a little maintenance chemo. I had another little surgery where they took uh, cancer off my stomach muscle. But my friends were pushing me hard to the gym, to a bike, to play basketball again. And I was rebuilding myself up again and building up my physical fitness, my mental toughness. And it's funny how things happen that my friend David Crum asked me to go for a bagel. And he's basically saying goodbye. Everyone was saying goodbye. They didn't know. No one knew, right? right. Only God knows your number. And in the, in the stage four cancer world, as, <clears throat> as in blood cancer and solid tumor cancer, we lose good people every day. And it's not because they want to die. It's because the cancer burden is too great and God is calling them uh, to heaven. So he says to me, he goes, do you want to write a book? Want to leave a legacy for your wife and daughter? I was like, hell no. Writing a book would scare me. I, I can't write. I'm not a writer. He goes, go home and think about it. Talk to your uh, wife. He goes on a napkin, like Silicon Valley style. He wrote 10 chapter titles that we talked about. My wife and daughter laughed at me. I called them back the next day and I said, David, I'll write a book with you, but I have one request. He goes, only one? Most, most authors have a lot of 20. I said, just one. I said, I am not a good writer. You got to know what you're good at. I said, if you'll allow me to interview over Zoom, the most influential, important people in my life, I'll write a book with you. The, the, the phone went silent for about 30 seconds. He goes, uh, uh, we never have done that. I'll call you back. Call me back. He said, we're going to have to be very diligent. We're going to do it. It's going to take a year every Wednesday for two hours or more. And then the interviews, you're going to have to be organized on the interviews. Well, it took three years. I am proud to say that I'm the least likely public author. I'm holding up Shining Brightly hard copy. It's above my shoulder if you're watching, watching uh, video wise. I have a beautiful 18 chapter book about my entire life. And it's not a cancer book. This is a book of how to lead a resilient life taking care of all the ups and downs and all the arounds and the two steps back and, and, and just how to live a resilient life with hope and doing good deeds in your life. And it's awesome. It's a bestseller. And it launched my author career, it launched my speaking career, it launched my podcast career. And I basically pivoted and, and that's who I am now. I'm Mr. Shining Brightly. And listen, it. cancer sucks. But like in life, it's a freaking team sport. And I, I built the best team. I had my doctors from old. I had great friends. I took in vibration. I took prayer from all religions. 
and I friggin' made it and I'm here and I'm alive and breathing. Now I have lots of side effects, chemo brain, uh, stage three peripheral neuropathy. I go to the bathroom a lot, but you know what? I got to see my daughter graduate high school. I got to see her graduate college. And you know what? I'm putting it out there right now. Okay. I'm going to walk her down the aisle and see grandkids. That's it. I'm putting it out there. That's what's happening. And I got my life back again. And for that, like I said before, I am blessed. I'm grateful. And I'm very lucky. I love it, Howard. Thank you so much. And I was going to ask you, right, to talk about your book and how that sure. came about. <laughs> and that's awesome, right, that you put that because you know, as I know, right, and all the personal development and the people like, um, God, I'm just trying to blame, but the one that said, right, our thoughts become things, right? Like if we focus on having those good thoughts, right, and the things we want, and then we do the work, which the secret, right, was all great, but it didn't tell us. It, it almost made like you just, if you just put a thought out there, you're going to become a millionaire, right? I've been doing that for a long time, but that doesn't happen, right? But like what you said, and I hope my audience is really paying attention, right? Because not only did you fight back, but you did the work and then you continue to put out, right? And something that sticks with me that I hear in, in you sharing your story, right? is how you surrounded yourself with people that were going to be supportive and lift you up, right? Because all of us go through challenges, right? Um, for me, for example, right, to get sober, I had to be surrounded by people that were sober, that had gone down that path long before I did, they'd show me how to do it, right? Um, which has led me to have this interview with you, right? Like, I just, I'm so inspired by your story, right? And so talk about it a little bit about your book. Yeah. You kind of touched on it, but yeah, tell my audience about your book. And, so you, you, you're asking me a lot of questions that people have asked me, what did you learn? All right. What yeah. did you learn from these major life altering events? And the first thing I learned is actually how to be selfish and how to accept help. All right. Listen, we're men. You know, right? We're from Mars. We want to, we're cavemen. We want to do it ourselves. We want to be the hunter, the gatherer, and everything. I, in my times of need, okay, learned, learned how to accept help from people bringing over meals to starting a GoFundMe to help me with medical bills to be able to um, help Emily and, and, and take her on soccer weekends when I couldn't. And um, that was a big lesson to be humble and vulnerable enough, okay, to be able to do that. The second thing I learned is that it's not actually what you get in this life. Okay. I was allowing other people the ability to give to me and it made them feel good that they were doing something positive. All right. It's actually what you give in this life. That makes a good life. You have to be a giver. Okay. And lift up others. So I say you lift up yourself and you take care of yourself. And we spoke about this, right? You've got to be able to eat healthy. You've got to be able to exercise. You've got to be able to hydrate and sleep well, right? So that your optimal efficiency to function each day and go after and, and, and accomplish things that each day, right? And you actually have to give yourself some self-love and some group love. Then you go out and help others, all right? There's so many people that could lose, you know, lead, use a mentor, okay? Um, and mentorship is leadership. And I have a whole chapter on mentorship because it's a lost art. But you go and lift up others, right? And then what the Shining Brightly moment is all, movement is all about is joining together to become a force multiplier for good and positive change. And that's what that's all I do every single day. I, I don't just talk the talk, I walk the walk. And so there were some certain truths that came out and um, out of the book. And they actually relate to, to some of the questions. You asked me what fearless is, and I said it was courage uh, to face life head on and shine a positive light on others. That's my definition of fearless. But we all have a light, right? And I had some really dark times. And darkness usually equates with depression, anger, anxiety, drug addiction. It can, you can, darkness can be all the bad stuff, right? It doesn't have to be, but it can be. And that light in us is that that's the fuel of hope, right? That's the fuel of gratitude. That's the fuel of living intentionally and drawing boundaries and, and actually knowing yourself a little bit, but we all have that special light within us. Okay. And then I needed that light to get stronger and stronger and everyone was giving to me. And that's, that's basically how I took that in. Right. And you have to learn how to be able to take it in. All right. That was the selfish part for me. And so 
I think resiliency, true resiliency, okay, the kind that was strong enough to get me through cancer is what everyone can learn to be able to take in to get them through the worst of times, okay? And even get them through the small little hiccups in life as well. So against impossible odds, that light helped me. And then now that light circles the world, okay? And we celebrate everybody's diversity, but we do that together. There's enough negative stuff in the world, school shootings, wars, elections, all that stuff. Okay, I'm choosing to stay on positive street. And so this book basically documents my life from my great grandmother who came over from Lithuania, my grandfather fought in the war, and each chapter builds on it through family and memories and what's important, okay, taking you all the way to the final chapter, which is something called sharing hope. Sharing hope like love, sharing hope like a hug. You share that hope, you can get someone to take a step out of bed that day. You can help them from not go falling off the wagon of recovery. You can help them go buy a, a random act of kindness for someone and buy a coffee for someone behind you that day. It doesn't take much. A smile, hold the door open for somebody, and then you go on to bigger things. So the book is really a life guide. It's a life guide according to me through lived experience, okay? Who over also overcame to stage four diagnosis of cancer. That's awesome. Like, man, you just gave me goosebumps, right? Because I love your energy and, you know, and people are going to listen to this and go, you know, how can we argue with Howard? Because he's been through the worst, right? Like, and I, I'm like you, I believe that, right? Like, I believe there's a selfish part of us that has to be selfish, right? Like you said, taking care of ourselves so that we can be go be those go-givers, right? Because- right. You heard that saying, right? That analogy, you can't pour from an empty cup. If I'm not, right. if I'm always giving, 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 right? And, and not taking care of me and my immediate family, the people that need my help are going to go, where'd he go? He's, oh, he's passed out over there. He's so tired, right? Um, I love it, right? So I'm going to ask you again, though, and, and uh, really dive into this. Okay. So, you know, I wrote a book. It's called Fearless Happiness. Yep. They heard your story. So they want to hear from you now, like, what does fearless mean to you, Howard, now, today, and, and how does that show up in your life every day? So fearless doesn't mean reckless, okay? Fearless to me means that you're open to new experiences, new challenges, okay, with an open mind and open heart, okay, even if the outcome isn't what you want. And you, you being fearless is again another fuel that allows you to get stuff done and to move forward. And I, I that's 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 it's an important. You have to be able to be able to rely on that, and it's it's important. Love it, great, great. Just like I'm having so much. We could probably go for hours and hours here, but <laughs> so awesome. we kind of talked about this earlier, right? So you yes. see, the second part of my is happiness with the why. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I did that on purpose. But like, like you, know, I I get hit up all the time. Like you spelled that wrong. I know I did, but I did it on purpose. But knowing I put that why there, and I think you know from our conversation today why I put the why there. Yeah. But what does happiness mean to you, and how does that show up in your life today, Howard? So, when you're in treatment for 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 cancer treatment or addiction or any issue that you're facing. You know, you want one more clean second, one more day, one more minute with your families, one more year. You just want more time. All right. And so ha happiness to me, okay, is that that thing is that I'm okay. My foundation is rock solid and good. I've checked it. I've lifted myself up. Happiness is lifting up others. That's that's what we're here to do. And in the first chapter of my book, I'm going to define happiness because we defined it very similarly. Great grandmother Bubby Buddhist taught me at five years old, and they drilled it into me and my sister that the word is called chesed. Chesed in Hebrew means living a life of kindness. How hard is that? Right? The second word she taught us was tzedakah. Tzedakah is the justice of giving and giving to yourself and giving to others. And the last word is called tikkun olam, and that means healing and repairing a broken world. So it means healing and repairing yourself. And hearing and repelling others. And that is godlike. And that's happiness. I love it. I love it. I could high five you. I'd do it. We are. Uh, <laughs> that's so awesome. Oh my God. This has really been great. Um, so, Howard, where can they find your book? Where can my audience find your book or yeah. work with you or have you speak for them? 
Sure. How can they get a hold of you? Okay. So I'm going to put on my sunglasses because we are shining brightly. And and my if you're watching a video, I've got the sunshine shining up. And we're shining it over to you, Max, for having me here and allowing me to tell my story and share it with your uh, audience. And I'm grateful for that. It's awesome. And uh, we'll have you back on mine as a, a come on because you got your story to share with uh, with my group and my audience as well. But I'm very easily reached, very interactive. It's shiningbrightly.com. My book, of course, is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and uh, it's a hard copy paperback and the Kindle. Can't sign the you know, the Kindle, but if you do get your book and you want me to sign a book plate, I'm holding up a sticker book plate. Well, I autograph it, send it to you. I'll send you a pair of white shining brightly glasses, and. Uh, for speaking is all on there. You can see me speak. Uh, I've been on a zillion podcasts and you can watch me on those as well. Um, we talk about cancer and mentorship. I have some downloads off the website. One is on survivorship and it's surviving cancer and life. The other one is mentorship is leadership. And the third is my passion for uh, community service in the interfaith world and finding out about other cultures and other um, uh, other people and how they live and being welcoming as Abraham would welcome them under their tent. And so I'd love to come and speak. I'd love to get interactive with you and uh, feel free to listen to my podcast as well. And just thank you for having me on. And I, I want to close and, and hand it back to you is that if we can shine brightly just a little bit each day for ourselves, for others, in our communities, the world will become a better place. Amen. Right. I love Amen. that. John, that was awesome. So you're not quite off the hook just oh, yet, Howard. Oh, okay. Right? So you uh, heard what he said. You get his book on Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, anywhere you can buy a book, you know, hardcover, softcover, Kindle. Yep. Uh, come support my friend Howard here. Um, and you know where to reach him now. But one thing I like to ask, there's one last question I ask all my guests, right? Because I've just been loving hearing your wisdom and your, your energy today. So that last question is, Howard, is what is the one piece of advice you would give my audience to help them grow as a human being and become better people? Yes. So we've kind of just danced and, and, and talked about it straight on is that to um, the, the one piece of advice is to, if you're okay, go lift up others, go help someone else, go help a friend, go help a stranger, go help a group of kids go do that. And that's, that's the first thing. And then I, I do have a second thing is that and parting being selfish is finding your happy place, find that stress-free zone and go there often. Mine happens to be the basketball court. I don't care if it's cooking, yoga, hiking, biking, travel, art, music, find your happy place and go there often. I love it. I want to thank you, sir, for being here. This has been such a great time. I had no doubt from the minute we started talking before we got on here. I hope you, you know how I say it, audience, if Howard made you laugh, he made you smile, he made you think, and as I like to say, he made you go, hmm, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star review so more people can find this and, uh, you know, just keep being the light that you are, Howard. Thank you for being here so from the bottom of my heart, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. And you heard it, audience. Remember, just go out there and go help somebody. I mean, you the rewards, and Howard will tell you, the words, rewards that you get from doing that are tenfold, right? Like, it's the best thing you can do. And, and if you see how he's smiling from ear to ear like I am, right? We had such a great time. All right. Till next time, audience. Until next time, I will see you all later. Have a great evening, a great afternoon, or great morning, wherever you are in this world, and I'll see you later. Are you tired of being weighed down by life's traumas and struggles? Join the Fearless Happiness Lifestyle and let us guide you toward a brighter future. Explore our past podcast episodes and get a copy of the Fearless Happiness book to ignite your inner strength. If you or someone you love is battling addiction or facing challenges related to unresolved trauma, know that we are here for you. Visit maxnates.org. M-A-X-N-I-J-S-T dot O-R-G and take the first steps toward finding your fearless happiness. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of Fearless Happiness.